Honorado and company coming at you live on the News Channel 13 Facebook, Twitter, YouTube pages, Chris Honorado and Ashley Miller. Hey, Ash. Hey, good morning. How are you? Excellent. Ready to go on a Thursday. Baseball season is more than a month in. The NBA playoffs are down to the conference finals. Stanley Cup playoffs are catching up quickly. Mm -hmm. Um a wild, wild game in the NHL on Wednesday oh. night. I mean, I don't ever remember 15 goals scored in a single game. We can try to get into to some yeah. of that here. But um, baseball is first and foremost on our minds. And uh, and our guest coming up on the show is NBA reporter and author Chris Herring, who has the smash book out right now called Blood in the Garden. And I am fired I started up to some 1990s NBA with our guy, Chris Herring. Let's get the show started, though. On the other side, Aaron Judge's big bet on himself is paying off. So far, Yanks are red hot, historically hot. And the Mets are holding their collective breath over a potential pitching injury. Let's go. Is Honorado and Company brought to you by Alpen House? And a shout out to all of our local business partners here on Honorado and Company. Ash, this is what I love about I say live TV because it's used to what we're, we're we're used to doing live TV. But what I love about just doing a live stream show is you plan for something right at the beginning. Okay, let's no, we've got better things to do than talk about the Yankees or Mets, and that is to talk about the NBA playoffs. Okay, an incredible book that Chris Herring has out called Blood in the Garden. I see him getting set up, and what we have is a little bit of a green yeah. view. I'll give him a second. I've started, path. yeah, I've started the book. This, this may be my book for May because I'm a little behind. So my uh, New Year's resolution was to read a book every month. Well, it's May, what, 19th? Yeah. I started I started this two days ago. So I'm going to have to play catch up quick. But uh, really good so far. And you are like a big 90s NBA guy. So this mm -hmm. will be fun for you. I know. I romanticize yep. it probably too often for people's liking. But that is when you had playoff, real playoff basketball. All right, let's bring our guest into the conversation here. Chris Herring, who covers the NBA, and he's got this smash of a book out called Blood in the Garden. Chris, it's Chris Honorado and Ashley Miller up in Albany, New York, man. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining the show, man. Um, I'm a big fan of the book, big <laughs> fan of 90s hoops. Still love basketball now, but... Yeah. I, uh, I reminisce oftentimes about those Eastern Conference playoff battles. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. Like, how do you, 20 years later, more than that now, hey, you know what, this is the right time to talk about the 1990s New York Knicks. Well, I wish I could take credit for all of that. Um, a literary agent actually, you know, kind of had the thought, was doing a really good job just as far as trying to get a sense of what the marketplace wanted. He would talk to book publishers and say, what sort of books are you looking forward to seeing do you think would sell well? And the one thing about book publishing, all the book publishers essentially are headquartered in New York City. So you have a lot of people that run the, the publishing houses that are Knicks fans, naturally. Um, and, you know, rightly looked at the situation and said, you know, Knicks really have not been good in a long time. Um, 
So people are maybe more nostalgic in New York than in other places. So at that point, he just had to find an author that could kind of put together a book like that. And um, he started asking around to some of some of the people that had written books for him before to get a sense of who would be the best person to do this. And um, the, you know, a couple of people mentioned me and I covered the Knicks from 2012 to 2016. Yeah. Um, and so he asked me, I said no a couple of times, basically. <laughs> Um, then he came around to it, you know, I'm someone that wanted to do a book at some point and, you know, was probably just kind of waiting for the right subject to the right timing. It did not feel like the right timing to me. My dad had passed away a couple of years or not a couple of years, a couple of months before this really unexpectedly. Um, I was busier than I'd ever been. I just needed to exhale really badly. Um, but thought about it a couple more times and, and really did think I could do a good job with it and figured it could be a great first book to try to write. Um, even though it wasn't my idea initially. And I uh, got excited about it and spent two and a half years kind of in the hole working on it. I guess not in the hole. I was still working full time, yeah. but, um, but did, did work on it. And, you know, I'm proud of it at this point. Chris, you said you covered the Knicks from 2012 to 2016. Um, I know you've worked for various media outlets, but what is your NBA fandom? Are you a Knicks fan at heart? And what was this process like for you to work through? Because this takes you back to prior to you covering the team. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so to give you full context, I was four years old when Pat Riley got hired. I was not <laughs> old enough to have, you know, to have known really anything about the team during those years. And um, I live in Chicago. I was raised in Chicago. So if anything, I was a, a Bulls fan. But again, I was too young, certainly at the beginning of this process, at the beginning of the, this uh, this stretch of time. And even, you know, though I was a Bulls fan during my childhood, I wasn't enough of a fan or old enough to understand the dynamic between the Knicks and the Bulls. It, and I wasn't old enough to have really been a Bulls fan, really, until maybe Michael Jordan won maybe his, his fifth title. Um, so maybe by the time that I am, uh, or not, you know, eight years old at that point, I'm starting to get a better sense. But all I knew was that the Bulls were really, really good and that, we got parades every year here in the summer in <laughs> Chicago. I didn't know what it meant context wise. I didn't know by that point, the bulls and the Knicks weren't playing each other in the playoffs every year anymore. I don't think they played each other in the playoffs since 1996. So um, I had no context around any of this. I, you know, my fandom ended very quickly as a bulls fan um, because, you know, people talk about diehard fans. You couldn't call me one because the minute Michael Jordan wasn't playing for the Bulls anymore, and they, they handed it over to high schoolers. I did not care. Um, so I, you know, I'm not a fan of any team, really. I think covering the league kind of, for me, it neutralizes that hmm. because you're watching how how much guys put into it. You're you're wanting to distance yourself so much from people that, you know, get angry and tweet at people when you know someone has a bad game and they complain about their fantasy team or someone breaks their leg and they're like, man, my fantasy team is going to take a hit. You're like. You don't want to be associated with that because you're watching the the sweat equity that they put into it. I remember writing about Tyson Chandler and um, how he would get sick often uh, during the season and he would get hurt. And people would say he should quarantine from his family, you know, if he's going to get sick like this. And and some of them would be serious. They're like he makes 15 million a year. And and it, I know most people are not like that, but I just wanted to always have a, a distance um, between me and, and, and people like you're covering the team. You, you don't mm -hmm. want to do that as a fan that it warps your perception of things. But anyway, 
Um, so that was my reality is that I was a fan of the Bulls as a small, small child, but not, you know, I haven't been a fan in a long, long time. So I was writing this from a pretty straight down the middle standpoint and kind of as a fly on the wall, the best I could. I talked to more than 200 people for this book. Our viewers probably ask better questions than Ash and I do. So Joel's watching on YouTube, Chris. He wants to know, did Ewing get too much blame for the team's failure to win a championship? And was Starks unfairly judged for that game seven in Houston? Um, It's funny because within that question, I actually think it, it's a little bit. Well, the first part is like reversed, I think. I don't think that Ewing gets enough blame for the, the championship in 1994 mm. um, because he was their best player. And if you look back, um, you know, when you talk about the pantheon of like rankings for centers and people that deserve to be top 10 players, Hakeem Olajuwon dominated Patrick mm. in that series. Uh, Patrick, you know, had, I think four games where he shot less than 40% mm. from the field. Uh, and because of it, John Stark's, essentially became the team's number one option in that series with that happening you know he was fantastic for more than half the series he had right. double digit fourth quarters in games four five and six and nearly won the series for the knicks in game six um on the last play of the game he had a three that he took that would have won it for the knicks had it gone down Hakeem Olajuwon got maybe a fingernail grazed the shot with the fingernail to change the trajectory of it um, but the reason John was doing all that is because Patrick was really struggling to score against Hakeem Olajuwon and was not playing like a number one or even a number two option in that series. So um, I don't think he gets enough blame for that. Um, was Starks unfairly judged? No, because I mean, you know, on the one hand, you don't have to shoot 18 for 18 for people to say he did his part mm -hmm. in game seven. He could have shot six for 18. He could have shot eight for 18. He could have shot four for 18 and it would have been better than the two for 18 in a game that they lost by, I think seven points. Right. So it, you know, I, I think the judgment is fair there. I, what I think is interesting. I think Riley also has to take blame for that too, that he rolled with John Starks. Again, the context was that John Starks had been their only chance in late game situations, three double digit fourth quarters in a row, I think 16 in the fourth quarter of game six, um, so he had been their best clutch option, their best scoring option. So Riley rolled with him. But as I write in the book, and hopefully not to give away too many spoilers, um, Pat Riley had a, a big argument with Rolando Blackman, who would have been one of the most logical substitutes for John Starks. He had a big argument with him in the series before, which Doc Rivers, Derek Harper, Charles Oakley, and Rolando himself have all remembered and have all wondered how much of a factor did that mm. play in Pat Riley not using Rolando, who for his career, Rolando shot better percentage wise, but also scoring wise, uh, average points per game. He had better games against the Rockets than any team in his career. He played for the Mavericks previously. And so he played against the Rockets a lot. And Scott Brooks, who played for the Rockets and I interviewed for the book, even said we were petrified that he was going to bring Rolando Blackman in for game seven because we never had a way of stopping him that he never did actually bring um, Rolando in. And so, you know, Riley never did answer that question for me, uh, but he has called it one of the biggest mistakes in his career, leaving Starks in um, and not putting Rolando in the game. And Rolando obviously retired after that game, which, uh, you know, was just kind of a, a question that we'll have for the ages of what would have happened. You don't have to take Starks out for the entire fourth, but 
maybe take him out for two minutes to give him a breather just to compose himself because the reality was he had not slept for the three nights before that because he was still agonizing over the ending of game six. And he was kind of running that play in his head over and over again. Mm. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things, and this is not, I haven't gotten all the way through the book and this will tell you how I'm just kind of a sucker for like a good punchline here and not a punchline, but this is shocking to me. And I think my generation and obviously younger generations, this is how we know the Knicks is, is the downfall, which you talk about. And it's, it's just kind of the terrible team that we've seen the last 20 plus years. But since 2001, you say this, they've spent more money, lost more games and won fewer playoff series than any other team in the NBA. And I think the most incredible part of that, the losing doesn't blow my mind. It's the fact that they've spent more money than any other team. Like that is hard for me to wrap my mind around because they're not a max player team and at least haven't been in the last five, six, seven years. Tells you tells you how much money they spent uh, in the five, six, seven, you know, not the five or six, seven, but you know, the 13 or 14 years before that, you know, yeah. from 2000 or so. And it's interesting because people have asked me the question several times. Um, do you just feel like Jim Dolan is to blame for all this? And if you mm-hmm. get far enough into the book, I start connecting a lot of those dots to show exactly the the sort of influence he has and, and where it's very, very heavy handed, you know. And that, again, that's me being down the middle. It's not me trying to sledgehammer the guy. Um, but I mean, it's obvious that he's had certain influences among them is that he wants to be in, he wanted to be involved. At least I think he's done a better job of not um, getting involved the last few years. But, you know, I, I think the bigger thing to be fair to Jim Dolan, because there have been a few years where the Knicks have been better than people expected. Last season was a good example of that. Um, and the year that I started covering the team in 2012 was a good example of that, where they won 54 games and finished second in the East. I don't think people are rushing to talk about Jim Dolan's influence when the team does well. So there are times where they can kind of um, surprise people. I think more realistically, the problem with the team, and maybe you can put some of this on Dolan as far as why the team has struggled in this regard. They had a legitimate superstar from 1985 to 2000, 2001 or so with Patrick Ewing. They haven't had that year in, year out since then. Carmelo is maybe the closest thing they've had since then, at least in a healthy form. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carmelo had flaws in his game that, that Patrick didn't necessarily have. Um, and there was a better cast of players around Patrick as far as just the, the fit and the identity. There hasn't really been one. It's something that changes year to year, day to day, you know, with, with this organization. So I think that's a lot to blame for it. But when you look at one, they haven't had Patrick since, you know, those early 2000 years. I think the other thing is that the way they traded Patrick kind of started a really, really unfortunate cycle for them is that they traded him. And I mentioned this in the book for a lot of pieces. can't remember exactly who the guys were, but it was like Glenn Rice and a bunch of other guys that were by that point in their career were falling off that had big, heavy contracts that you had to take in, you know, to, to, in order to unload Patrick, Patrick, if they had just taken him for the last year of his uh, Knicks tenure on the last year of his contract, they would have owed him however much it was. And it was a big number. It was like 18 million or 19 million, which was a lot for those years. Mm-hmm. It was about like 2000, 2001, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But um, instead of keeping him for that year and just paying him for that year, they traded him for guys that had money that ran multiple years into the future for like to the tune of like $90 million. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it was like 18 million for that year, but they all had money that lasted <laughs> for another four or five years. And they kept making trades like that, that promised so much money to guys and saddled the Knicks with so much long-term salary. And they kept doing that as a way to try to, you know, to win now, but really like also win later. But these were guys that were declining. And so they kept doing that. And I think they'd still, you know, I won't say to this day, but up until a few years ago, we're still doing those sorts of things that were really short-sighted um, that were, you know, like hopefully we can squeeze something out of this now, but not really thinking about it. It, it would be like saving your retirement money or not saving your retirement that. And it, it really came back to bite them. And Dolan, a lot of times, would override his general managers and his executives to make deals, not the Ewing one, but um, the Andrea Bargnani trade yep. that happened while I was covering the team where you're giving up Steve Novak, who's had the best three-point percentage in the league for the last two years, for a guy that shot less than 30% from three <laughs> and has been injury-prone for the years leading up to that. And then what do you know? He can't shoot threes, and he gets hurt during his Knicks tenure. Um, you know, deals like that and several, several other ones, that, including the Carmelo one where, um, you know, he got involved and pulled the trigger and gave up more than the Knicks wanted to, the Knicks executives wanted to, because he really wanted the deal to get done. And again, that's Dolan's influence is that he's always been a little bit more involved than he should be. He overrides people that he has put in charge. Um, but I don't think, you know, as much as I know all that, I don't think that it's always been his fault. I think that um, they have just not had another true superstar. I think they're hoping Carmelo would be that. And I think he was maybe a tear short of that. Um, or maybe he had that performance for one or two seasons, but uh yeah, there's a lot of problems with this team, or there have been at least. And uh, it, it, I think it's helpful to look back at what the 90s were and how stable they were to get a sense of what the team often did right during this year. Yeah. And look, the coaching of Riley and Van Gundy after that, a major difference from some of the coaches that you know the Knicks have run through here in the 2000s as well. I, I'll ask you now just because I'm on it, is, is Tibbs the guy? Is, is this the right job? for Tom Thibodeau to, I'm not talking about win a championship, Chris, but to win a playoff series in New York. I, I think that might be possible. I think it will require him having um, a better roster than, than what he had last year. I think that, look, I, you know, if you are on the Twitter sphere at all and you follow enough fans, you know that a lot of younger fans and a lot of people that are on social media really wanted him out this year um i think that that's maybe a percentage of what fans think uh, i think there were expectations this past year um in terms of the way he you know would lead the team based on what we saw the season before where they were unexpectedly very good um at the same time he does have kind of a history and a track record of doing well uh to start unexpectedly mm -hmm. well and then things kind of falling off a cliff a little bit um, when he, his, the way he coaches and, you know, the way he asks for so much of his players, it wears on guys. And in a very similar to way to in the book, Pat Riley really wore on guys yep. after the third, fourth year, particularly after you have nothing to show for it. You know, with those Knicks in the 90s, it was to not win a championship. With Riley, it was that way. I think with Thibodeau, it would be, like you said, if you can't win a playoff series, what you know, do your players start to tune you out when they don't? have that success when they don't win. So, I, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see whether they can get there. His track record would suggest that, no, it's not right to assume that he would, you know, have 
his best year yet with the team. He hasn't had that trajectory yet with um, the Bulls, with the Timberwolves, and, and now I guess we'll see with the Knicks. Um, I do think this is kind of a make-or-break year for him, mm-hmm. um, given that they'll be going into year three, given that I think you could maybe get a mulligan with last year because Kemba Walker obviously was not um, someone that they could rely on physically to be out there. You can put that on the front office. Um, Evan Fournier was not great for them in the early parts of the season. To some extent, you could put that on the front office and they did not make trades during the deadline. And you could put that on the front office. So I would venture to guess that the front office is going to take more of a swing this year. Um, And if they do that, I imagine that the blame is going to rest with Thibodeau if they don't get it done. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll find out really soon the answer to that question, whether he can be the guy, but it is interesting that he has ties to, you know, those Riley years, those Van Gundy years, because he was an assistant under Jeff. Um, and so they do have some of that blood running through the organization again, but, um, you know, basketball has changed a lot in, in a lot of ways. Uh, Riley obviously has continued to have success, but it's been a long time for the Knicks. Ash, let me jump in with, with one yeah. here and, Throw up the book there, if you would. Blood in the Garden is the book, and Chris Herring is the Mm -hmm. author. Covers the NBA. You can see on your screen. Go follow him on Twitter as he covers the league, and go read the book. It is absolutely worth your time. Um, Am I romanticizing 90s (laughs) basketball? I'll I'll, I'll say this, Chris, and then you can judge my my, – intel on on nba um it's more entertaining now from a skill set standpoint the guys now are so much more talented and skilled than they were in the 90s um but to me watching the playoffs in the 90s was more enjoyable because there was more physicality to it these guys didn't seem to like each other um they weren't hanging out the night before or in the off season working out together like that. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't remember ever hearing about guys working out together in the off season from opposing teams. Um, so a- am I right here? W- was nineties basketball, something that is worth me being the old guy on the block? Like, uh, you guys don't have any idea. It was different. It was certainly different. I mean, there's nothing wrong with admitting that. I think that's the truth. What I will say that's funny, I, I think that the last couple of weeks have maybe been as close to what yeah. I remember okay. uh, in the NBA recently, aside from the 90s, that Bucks celtics series was mm-hmm. yeah. extremely, extremely physical. Um, not in a dirty way. Uh, mm-hmm. At least most of the time I didn't feel like it was. Um, but it did kind of remind me of that a little bit where the refs were struggling to keep a hold on the game. They were struggling to figure out what's a foul, what's not. You'd see Giannis ram into Grant Williams's chest two and three times before he, you know, looks for a shot. So that was certainly different, but that was a mild version of what the nineties were as far as the fights. I mean, and to what you're saying, and I, I do try to draw somewhat direct lines throughout the book in saying that as unrefined as the Knicks were in some ways during the 1990s, I think that they are maybe as responsible or to blame the league kind of moving into this heavily you know skill-based athleticism based league um the nba was very protective of michael jordan and they will tell you that like it wasn't to be protective of michael specifically um and they will tell you that they weren't trying to protect michael from the the knicks specifically but that they did start implementing several rule changes that were very clearly put in place because of the knicks the knicks for instance in 1993 
had way more flagrant fouls than any other team in the league. Hell, Charles Oakley had more flagrant fouls by himself than 15 <laughs> teams did in 1993. Uh, um, he had more than twice as many flagrant fouls as any other player in 1993. So the league very quickly after that season was looking to alter those rules. They were starting to make it so that flagrant fouls were going to be penalized differently. You could only have so many of them before the league would suspend you. Um, that was part of it. The hand checking, getting rid of it was part of it to try to increase the scoring. Uh, and, you know, uh, Derek Harper, the next starting mm. point guard for a few years, was the poster child of that so much so that when the league started outlawing that and showing players what would no longer be allowed, and they went from team to team during training camp to show that they'd no longer allow it, Derek Harper was kind of the star of the video where, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen that meme with Garfield, where they say, like, no <laughs> hungry cats that are going to eat all my food allowed – they have the picture of Garfield kind of in that no smoking sign with the little <laughs> sign through it. Derek Harper was essentially that, that guy where Derek Harper thought it was funny to watch the video, but he's like, wait a minute, you guys are really scapegoating me here and saying, I'm the reason that hand checking has gotten out of line. Mm. But so they took, they took, they got rid of that. They moved the three point line in, which it would seem like it would condense the game more um, to do that defensively. But actually it does the opposite because guys that normally hang out at the rim and hang out at the basket defensively and don't guard anybody because they're trying to grab a rebound or trying to stop guys from driving into the paint. Now those guys have to come out to the three-point line to guard a little bit more because otherwise you're giving guys what, you know, at a certain point would have become a, a wide open free throw, um, you know, if they move the line in too far and you're not guarding them. So guys had to be more cognizant of opponents shooting threes uh, because they're going to move the line in closer, the arc in closer. So, all these things were spacing the game out more. We're making it more based on skill. And the league's response to me asking why that would happen and why they would do that was basically that we didn't, we, we started to worry that physicality was going to become more important than skill. And we didn't want to give teams an incentive to build their teams that way. Mm. Uh, we wanted athleticism and we wanted skill and talent to be more important. And we didn't want that, you know, physicality to be an equalizer to where you don't have to build your roster in a way that has skill on it. Um, so the Knicks were like, again, they were the team that that was aimed at. They claim they weren't. Um, they say that, you know, the Knicks were what the, the closest the Nick, the league came to, uh, to acknowledging that the Knicks were the reason for all that. They said, okay, the Knicks weren't the reason, but I can understand you asking the question the way you do, because they probably were the team that was most physical and that teams were emulating. And so in some ways we were trying to stop other teams from becoming the way the Knicks were becoming. Uh, and it did change things where, you know, if you don't have shooting on your team, it was going to hinder you in a way after now. You know, the Knicks were physical for another couple of years. And then after a while, they, they changed the roster and had Latrell Sprewell and Marcus mm -hmm. Camby and guys that were not thought of as, as that physical, you know, and they lost Charles Oakley and lost John Starks. They had lost Anthony Mason by that point to trade him for Larry Johnson. So it was more of a team based on skill and athleticism and talent than it was physicality by the time you got to about 97, 98 or mm -hmm. so. And now in Houston, obviously, it was another guy too. Right. It's funny, Chris, when you asked that question, I immediately thought the Celtics feel like the most 90s NBA team we've seen in a while, and it's because they play defense. Like they're the top-rated defense in the league, and they have skill still, which is, is hard to do to make that combination of skill and physicality. They've got the size, but then they've got the superstars who are certainly skillful as well. So I think, listen, it, they've shown that the formula can work. 
So maybe yeah. we see yeah. a little bit of a swing back. We always see more defense in the playoffs. That's kind of just kind of how it goes, but interesting. For sure. For sure. I mean, you know, they, the, the thing they've got going for them, although it did not really shine through in game one, yeah. they've got two guys that are, you know, all-star caliber mm-hmm. guys, Jason Tatum, right. you know, finished on the MVP ballot this year. Yeah. Um, so they've got more, I, I think they have a little bit more talent than those mm-hmm. Knicks teams did. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. You watch them and you watch the fact that all these guys are diving on the floor mm-hmm. and Marcus Smart being a defensive player of the year. And, um, you know, they, they it, it, it's certainly interesting um, when, when you look at them and the way they defend and how, mm-hmm. you know, how that that is a calling card for them. Generally, it, it is tough now that they're playing a team like Miami that does yeah. a lot of the same thing. Yeah. But uh, but that was the next reality whenever they played against a team like Indiana or whenever mm-hmm. they played against the Miami Heat. Uh, once Pat Riley got there is that you were playing a team that was your mirror image. Yeah. But uh, Boston certainly has a lot of those qualities for sure. Chris, I'll let you get out of here on this as we remind people the book is is out and available now, Blood in the Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the irony of all of this, as much as I love the 90s NBA, Ashley will tell you my favorite player to watch currently right. is Steph Curry, a guy who I'm not going <laughs> to besmirch the name, but let's just say – physicality and defense is not at at number one on his list of priorities when he starts uh, an NBA basketball game. Okay. But I'll let you get out of here on this. What happens first in the NBA? Do you think they move the three point line back or we get a four point shot? Um, if I had to guess what I would say is that we get a four point shot first. Um, because I kind of feel like the league, you know, and they haven't gone this way as far as the rules are concerned that I can remember, but, um, they, they look for small things. Gimmick is a little strong, but it's also probably accurate. Uh Um, as far as even earlier this week, we're, you know, you're seeing reports of them throwing in a mid season tournament, um, you know, within the next year or two, um, which we already have the plan now, which I think the plan tournament has been successful mm-hmm. um where it's been entertaining to watch you maybe sometimes it's a little frustrating for teams that are four or five games better than the teams behind them in ninth or tenth place where they don't feel like they should have to play their way in but it's been entertaining we watched uh the grizzlies play their way in last year and get some experience last year in the playoffs and then we watched them win around this year and and to some extent push a golden state even without john Moran. Yeah. um so the reason i say that you know if they, if they done that and now they're looking at a mid-season tournament to try to hold interest or to draw ratings or you know whatever it is that they're looking to do and you know they're always on the prowl for something else seemingly um a four-point play seems like maybe the thing that they would look to because that's more gimmicky than just moving the line back i don't think you're going to get more viewers right um by saying we're going to move the line back it would just make people that have complained about the proliferation of three pointers more happy, but I don't think it's going to bring people that stop watching the game because of three pointers back. You might get new viewers or have more to talk about. If you're making four pointers, a thing you'd have more games that in the final possession, all of a sudden you have to guard against four points instead of three. So if a team is down by four, that's still a one possession game. It keeps your interest longer. Um, You can think about it this way. We've had more 20-point and 30-point comebacks in the last couple of years than we ever have mm. because, again, the three-pointer is such a big thing. The momentum swings are faster. Um, if you had a four-pointer, I mean, that would be even more true in some ways that if guys get accurate at that, and they probably would because they've gotten really accurate from three all of a sudden, 
um, it would just make the, the, the leads even more fallible in, in, in some ways where teams could slip and other teams could kind of come back very quickly. So I, I think that that would be more. And um, I, I'd, I'd be a little bit surprised if they did that in the next couple of years. But then again, the league is always looking for ways to try to draw more eyeballs. I think even now as their ratings are increasing this season, we've seen that, uh, you know, I think the NFL is going to play games on Christmas this year, yes. which they normally don't. So that's yep. going to kind of start to encroach on the NBA's territory a little bit. So it wouldn't be surprising, wildly surprising to me yeah. if they start to look for things to tweak and, and gimmicky sort of stuff to utilize. Sam's watching. He hates the idea of a four-point shot or changing <laughs> Me too, the game at all. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm all in, and and I could do this all day, Chris. As you know, practice facilities are marked now with weird spots on the floor where guys can take shots that are worth more than three, if you will. So, people, go get this book, Blood in the Garden. If you are an NBA fan the way I am, if you remember the 90s the way mm-hmm. I do – it is so worth the read. Chris, uh, we appreciate you taking the time, man, yeah, and so uh, really enjoy your coverage of the league as well. We've chatted on radio before, but I appreciate yeah. you doing the uh, the visual thing here with us in Albany, New York. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to see you both, and you guys take care. Thanks, Thank you too, Chris. Chris Herring, we kept him over time, but again, yeah, I, tell no you, I, I, I could talk all I day know, about you, this stuff. You so. love it. I hope people go check out the book. Yeah. It is uh, it is worth reading for sure. All right. When we come back here on Honorado and Company, uh, we teased baseball. Let's get yep. to the baseball here. Aaron Judge is betting on himself that he can get a bigger contract than what the Yankees have offered. Let's just say this guy is red hot at the craps table right now. We're back right after this. At Marcello's Appliance Center, our commitment is to you, providing essential appliances that families depend on for cooking, refrigeration, cleaning, and sanitation, plus appliance repair. You can have peace of mind that Marcella's is here for you today and every day, like we have been since 1957, helping you make the right choice with trusted brands like Whirlpool, Maytag, KitchenAid, Genair, and many more. Shop Marcella's Appliance Center in-store, online, or by phone. We're here for you. It's time for Bright Stars, Blue Skies, and Total Freedom. Don't miss the camping season kickoff at Alpenhouse RV. Shop our biggest selection in years and buy a new 22-foot Avenger travel trailer for $1.94 a month or a new 33-foot Avenger travel trailer for just $2.45 a month. Plus, all 2020 and newer RVs come with our exclusive lifetime warranty. Act now and you can camp all year for free with your new RV during the camping season kickoff only at Alpenhouse RV. And now, back to Honorado and Company, brought to you by Alpenhouse. Alpenhouse and Novice and Performance Industrial and Popeyes and Pick 6 Vodka and KPM Restoration um, and Marcella's, our people at Marcella's, uh, we are loaded up with support and uh, could not be more thankful for uh, our local business partners here on Honorado and Company. Let's let's do some of these here, Ash. Comments? Sam, Sam, good morning. We good see morning. you, buddy. The J-Man watching as well. And Carol, Carol, I have something sitting at my desk, I'm told, at work that I need to open from you. So thank you already in advance. because Speaking says, of well, things. Hope you had from... a great birthday. Yeah, go ahead. I have it in my left hand. Do I it. Go right ahead. I used mine last night to have some cookies and milk when I got home at midnight. 
Sam. Our thanks to Sam for hooking us up with the uh, Masters Cups. Thank you, Sam. PGA Championship Week, but we're we're remembering back to the Masters, so we appreciate Sam all that uh, all that you've done for us. Nick is watching Who Day. Always a little Who Day day. from Nick uh, (laughs) and the great people at uh, at Marcellus. So we appreciate that. That was fun conversation with Chris Herring. I hope you all enjoyed that as well. Ash, you've been watching a ton of the Yankees. It's a lot more fun, obviously. When your team is winning, and man, are they winning. Here we are on a Thursday. They've won 21 of 24 games. Insane. Giancarlo Stanton is hot at the plate, but nobody is doing it quite like Aaron Judge this season. He said no thanks to a contract from the Yankees that was roughly seven years and worth $30 a year. Is he playing himself into – I get it. He's betting on himself. He's playing very well. Is he playing himself into a bigger contract, though? I mean, currently, yes. But we know how this has gone. But here's my question. If he sustains, and I'm not yeah. talking about him hitting 74 home runs and breaking yeah. the record or hitting 60, but let's say he hits 48 mm-hmm. and he's around 300 and he's got 130 RBIs. Is he worth more than $30 million a year? Is he going to get more than seven years? That, 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 I guess, is my question here is... My guess is he will get more than seven years from someone. I don't know how much more than 30, 30 years million old. you're going to give. I'm good. I, I, as a Yankee fan, I am good with the offer that they gave Aaron Judge. It wasn't that anyone thought he was a bad player. It wasn't that right. anyone thought he wasn't going to live up to a seven-year, $210 million contract. It was that... There are more players on your team. At some point, the Yankees are trying to be somewhat financially responsible with all this money tied up in Garrett Cole, all this money tied up in Giancarlo Stanton. Now all this money tied up in Aaron Judge, potentially, who else is playing for you? Mm. Like, I get it. He's one of the best players on the planet. But you can't win a World Series with just those three guys. Um, So I think he'll play into a bigger, maybe more lucrative contract, but I don't know if it's going to be with the Yankees. Cause I think at some point the Yankees are going to say, okay, we'll give you 31. We'll give you 32, but he's not, I don't think he's going to get 35 a year from the New York Yankees. And I just don't know that any one person is worth that. Like is you, I know if you take him off this team, it's a vastly different team. I just don't know if he's worth that. I'm I'm with you that I don't know. I don't. I don't think he gets more than seven. Somebody. I don't think anybody wants to pay him until he's forty. Yeah, I, he's I don't thirty know. now. So seven and eight is, eight? I think, as high as any team yeah. would go. Here's what I think becomes interesting: is the teams that have. I'm just checking on Max Scherzer news here, just in case something is okay. happening on this Thursday. Um, I think what you'll see is teams offer him. 42 million a year for three or four years. Okay. Yes. And, and Aaron judge has to make the decision. Right. Do you want the, do money I or want the, the long-term security mm-hmm. or do I want to? Cause think about this. If he signs a three-year deal and he's going to get 40 plus million a year, which I think is very realistic. I hit free agency again. Yep. The TV contracts are bigger and better. The DH is in both leagues. My options now when I hit my late 30s are doubled. So I go to free agency at 33 or 34. 
can I get another four years now still in that $40 million range because teams are making more money. They have more to spend. I, I wouldn't. I get that he's betting yeah. on himself short term yep. right now and it's working and it, it would lead somebody to believe, hey, I've done it before. I can do it again. But yep. we know what happens to the body in, mm-hmm. in the 30s. Um, I would say take as many years as you can get now to guarantee yourself being paid 30 plus million dollars when you're 37 or 38 years old. That would be me talking to 10 versus say he gets three years, 40, that's 120. I mean, both are plenty to live off of. You're all set. You're fine. If you get hurt, you break a leg, you never come back. You're a okay for the rest of your life. Um, but we've seen what injuries can do to him when he's bothered by an injury. Yeah, it can yeah. be a long extended period of time, whether or not that's because of his build, the the number of pounds, the muscle on his body, his height, like all of those play a factor. And does he deteriorate faster than a guy like DJ LeMahieu, who's, you know what I mean? Like who maybe doesn't put as much wear and tear on his body. Who's not built quite the same way. Yeah, probably. So those are all things that have to come into play. Um, I would prefer the Yankees give him three years, 40 than seven years, 30, because I just being tied into those contracts, I can deal with if he has a one bad year out of three. Okay. I can deal with the 40, but I can't deal with he tails off after four years. And now you're paying him 30 a year for the final three years of his contract. It, It also just the, the length of a contract that's seven or eight years long, as a Braves fan, I'm looking at Matt Olson eight years and I'm seeing what he's doing through a month and a half. And you're like, what are we going to get from now? Yeah. But, but that's, that's the immediacy yeah. that we have as a fan. Like, what are we getting from this guy mm-hmm. over the next seven and a half years? Look what he's done the first month and a half. The Braves overall have been bad, but, um, but it does concern you when mm-hmm. you, no matter the guy's track record and judges track record is better than Olson's. Yeah. Um, when you give somebody a deal like that, it, it, it would scare you off a little bit. It would Long-term scare me off commitment bit, is scary. Sure. Oh, is it ever? Woo, boy. Uh, Chris Honorado and Ashley Miller here on Honorado and Company. Our Twitter handle's there. We hope you give Chris Herring a follow as well, yes. at Herring underscore NBA, to check out his coverage um, and his book called Blood in the Garden. If you joined us midway through, beautiful thing about social media, go back and that. watch it or wait till Saturday night at 6.30 on my four, and you can check it out there as well. All right, when we come back here on Honorado and Company Ash, we've got the Popeyes Louisiana Fast Minute still to come. And Max Scherzer? Well, I didn't want to go too deep into it here because what if he ends up being healthy? And, yeah, okay. You know, no, but here we go. Yeah, Scherzer is, he left Wednesday's game in the sixth inning with side tightness. He said he doesn't think it's a major deal. He doesn't think it was a big-time strain, but... As you wait for Jacob DeGrom to get healthy, and now Max Scherzer at 37 years old Mm -hmm. uh, is maybe showing some wear and tear early in the season. Remember, he had the tired arm and couldn't pitch last postseason. The to start the season? Yes, there are some concerns here, yes? This is what every Mets fan was worried about. The ability to sustain the length of the season. We talked about the Mets being a really good team top to bottom. They're doing it without Jacob deGrom. Well, I'll tell you what, they can't do it without Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer. So they got to hope that it's not 
a long-term injury. And oh, by the way, Tyler McGill is on the uh, IL as well. So this is where things can start to go south. And this is why you talk about a team, what's more sustainable for the life of it's always the caveat is always injuries because I'm not saying I I want it to happen. The Mets season could literally change on a dime. Yes. No question. That one pitch to Albert Pujols. Yep. Yeah, we may be talking about that still in September. Like, hey, remember when Scherzer missed yep. two months? I, you know, I don't know. Um, there's a contract that didn't work out. Chris oh, Davis in boy. Baltimore. Did it ever not? Yeah, yeah, that was a really bad one. Different guys, obviously. Yep. Different guys. Davis <laughs> yep. had the one good year. Okay. All right, let's take a quick time out here. We come back. Popeye's Louisiana Fast Minute. We've got the Preakness mm-hmm. this week as well. Our pick six vodka picks. No, not, neither one of us had Rich Strike to win you some no, money last time at the Derby, but he's not. I didn't not even in... know who that horse was. Yeah, exactly. It, well, neither did he. Didn't know he was running until Friday. Yeah. So uh, he is not at Pimlico. We'll tell you about some of the horses that are there and what horses we think have the best chance to win. Back in only thirty seconds. Hang on, everyone. Teams. Athletes. organizations we're transforming the custom apparel industry through product and purpose claim your crown and now back to honorado and company brought to you by alpenhouse Quick shout out to our guys at Novice Clothing Company, noviceclothingcompany.com. Check them out. They've got some really cool things happening this summer, like their cat volleyball tournament as they relocate to a bigger building uh, along Wolf Road um, in Colony. The cat volleyball tournament is July 14th, um, and they've got a traveling golf league. That they are spearheading with our guy Bill Miller from Performance Industrial, another partner of ours here, um, to benefit the American Cancer Society. So two really cool things that uh, that our guys over at Novice are part of NoviceClothingCompany.com. Again, who or I saw on Instagram. I don't know. Mr. Just... Bernardo. Really? Nick Bernardo. And Why? as well as Mr. and Mrs. Bernardo, his parents. Oh. Uh, yeah, we were at the Bethlehem columbia baseball game and Cade was playing a little baseball and turned out to be his last game of uh, his high school career so all the bernardos were there okay bernardo cool crew. yeah that's awesome always good um, to see those guys. yeah always always good to see those guys here is your field for the preakness stakes the preakness ash hang on a second let me just yeah. say this on camera okay I would not want to be a sporting event like the Preakness State. It's the I, it's the middle child. That's it. That's it. And I, we, I'm one of two. You are one of two. Yep. We don't really understand the sure. middle child syndrome that appears to be very real. But horses don't want to run in the Preakness unless they've won the Derby, mm-hmm. or unless they narrowly lost the Derby, or want just do better in a shorter field like the preakness is the forgotten of the triple crown race i hate saying that because our guy chad brown has a preakness victory which is his one triple crown victory on his on his record right now but there's a reason people pass by the pre that i don't want to go to the preakness 
that there's a reason for it is because if you don't win the Derby, you're not going to run back on short rest. That's just not how the sport works. And it is, it would be short rest. So this is, you're automatically set up unless you have a Derby winner who's going to run in the Preakness, the interest fails because anyone who's running the Derby, unless you're epicenter is not running in the Preakness, but he's him and simplification, I think are the only two. And that's two of 20 that are running in this race. Carol, my God, we love you. Ah. She says, I'm a middle child. It sucks. I bet it does. Nobody wants that. All right, here we go. The Preakness Stakes, Ash, this weekend. Um, (laughs) Your field of nine horses. Will nine go off on Saturday? Don't know. Epicenter is the favorite, though. Certainly looked like he was going to win the Kentucky Derby up until he didn't at six to five. Secret Oath, nine to two. That exactly the Kentucky Oaks winner. You get the Philly in this race, which I think makes it at least maybe a little more interesting here. And early voting, which is a Chad Brown horse with Jose Ortiz aboard at seven to two. So look, there's enough interest in it for For us. Here are our picks. I'm on early voting. Let's go fresh. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going based on fresh legs here. Didn't run in the Derby. Chad says he's been pointing towards the Preakness with this horse all along. All right. Love it. He's confident. Love it. Let's do it. Epicenter finishes second again. And then simplification. So another Derby horse, two of the three ran in the Derby in my trifecta. So we went, well, first of all, I created a new horse name, Epicentera. Ooh, I didn't Added check that one. Added some flavor to it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm going, I went pretty, I mean, I guess technically we both went pretty heavy favorites. Simplification, yes. I think was only six to one. I went very heavy favorites. Uh, I've got the chick, we'll call her, the filly to hit the board in third, secret oath. Uh, I love the story when a filly runs against the boys for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah, early voting Chad in second, which I think I also picked him second in the derby. That didn't work mm. out for me or him. And then epicenter for the win. So I went favorite. I know we say favorite works out more often probably than it doesn't, but it didn't work out. Yeah, exactly. The 50 to one. But but here, honestly, this is my thought process on picking that trifecta specifically. Mm-hmm. Short field, yeah, wide open track. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of traffic to have to work through. Sure. You don't wait as long for every horse to load into the gate. To me, this type of field, the best horses win and hit the board. So yeah. maybe I'm making a point here that Epicenter should win. Maybe. But, but I think it's going to be either Epicenter or early voting. Okay. I'm going to be surprised if it isn't one of those two, to be completely okay. honest with you. I think it's going to be a wide open track let these guys and gals have at it. I would have said I was going to be surprised if there was an 80 to one that hit in the Derby too, but that happened. Yeah, no doubt. Um, All right, let's jump into the Popeye's Louisiana fast minute here. I just teed you up. You did. That's true. I teed you right on up. Yeah. Yep. If I were any good at this, I would have just rolled the open and said, have at it, Ash. All right. Uh, I know Chris did this last week. What My message here is for all you horse racing fans out there that feel like Rich Strike and his connections owe you something to shut up. This horse doesn't owe you anything. 80 to 1 shocks the world. 
comes in first in the Kentucky Derby. Now they're not going to run them. And all you people out there are complaining because you don't get to see a potential triple crown. Listen, I don't think anyone thinks the guy has a chance to win the Preakness. That being said, nobody thought he had a chance to win the Derby. But they're making the right decision. Finally, horse racing is making the right decision for a horse for the betterment of the animal. They don't want to run him back on short rest. That wasn't the plan. They want to give him five weeks. Hooray, they're going to give him five weeks. Let's just be happy for the horse. He can go run again some other time. If he never wins again in his life, it won't matter. He's a Kentucky Derby champ. But I like that they're doing what they feel is right for the horse and not thinking about them and their money. I'll be honest with you. You're you're pretty good at this. I mean, right on the one-minute mark, I can can never hit the minute mark. I will try it here. In a second, Popeye's Louisiana Fast Minute is something we do each and every week here on Honorado and Company. Shout out to Heidi Cousineau, Kevin Parisi, people who made this happen, this partnership uh, on our show as the Popeye's the pop up in the Capital Region. Mm-hmm. There were already a couple smattering. Yep. There are more and there are going to be more grand openings uh, throughout this year. So look out for them. The newest uh one in the Del Mar area. I, I always get fuzzy on like, yep. do I call Del that Mar, Albany? Albany? Yeah, I know. I call it Del Mar. Clifton and Park then, is still, still fresh and young. And then one up in Clifton Park as well with more, more to come. All right, here I go. On the Popeyes, Louisiana, fast minute clock. Nick Saban says Texas A&M bought their top-ranked recruiting class. He says that because NIL is now a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. As a coach and Saban said it, I've got an allotment of money that I know I can kind of guarantee to players. There's, it's a collective that I can guarantee to player that that's that's beyond even the car dealership deals that a, a player may strike with somebody the way Bryce Young, I think, made more than a million dollars this season as the quarterback of Alabama. Saban's not wrong. But I don't want to hear it yeah. because this has gone on. And, and I'm not saying Saban's been doing dirty things with boosters, but this has been going on forever. You essentially buy players as you recruit them with shiny new things like workout facilities, locker rooms that are state of the art, and a winning program. This is not new. It's it's a different tactic But the idea that you recruit by throwing things at players, even though back in the day it may not have just been straight cash, Mm -hmm. there's always been money spent, Ash, to try to lure better players to a college football or basketball program. We're just doing it in a different way now. Saban shouldn't have beef with this. You said it. I just, I don't want to hear it. This is nothing new. This sounds like sour grapes to me. Someone else got the top recruiting class in the country, so you're going to whine and call cheat. I don't want to hear it. You've been, you've had the top recruiting class in the country how many years out of the last 10? Seven, eight, nine maybe? Texas A&M has the top recruiting class, so you're going to call him out and say that they bought their top-ranked recruiting class. <clears throat> they bought yeah. every player on their team because they made an NIL deal. Guess what? This is the new arms race, is the NIL. And until the NCAA decides that there is a way that they can patrol it, that they can make rules for it, 
People are going to recruit using the NIL. Isaiah Wong said he was going to transfer out of Miami because there weren't enough NIL opportunities for him to make money. Guess what? That's a recruiting tool. Collectives are literally sums of 10, 20, $30 million that go to football players as a salary. That's not NIL. That you are paying someone's salary. I just don't want to hear it. Every, the NCAA is so dirty. All of the the idea of a collective is dirty. We're back worse than we were before NIL was created. I hate to relate athletics at a high level to the real world. I really try to avoid it at every possible moment because it isn't the real world. But raise your hand if you wouldn't leave your current job for a significant amount of money somewhere else. Now, everybody keep your hand down because you would. <laughs> I'm talking significant money. I'm right. talking life-changing money. I'm not yep. talking about, you know, look, that that's defined differently to everybody. I'm not talking about a sum of money that doesn't that you don't notice at the end of the day because yep. I'd rather stay around family or I like the security of my job. We would all take mm -hmm. another job for a significant amount of money, period. Yep. We would do it in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So if you don't think somebody at 19 is going to do it, you're out of your mind. Yeah. And I don't blame them. I, the, the, the opportunity to cash in for a lot of these athletes is so short. Mm -hmm. Even if they become a pro, right. you get maybe 10 years, maybe 10 years. So if I can start making money at 18 when I'm a college freshman, you better believe I'm doing it. Yeah, Chris, the other thing I didn't love, like he came out and said, Alabama players made $3 million last year, quote, doing it the right way. And this is another thing. Only 25 of his players were able to leverage NIL opportunities. Yeah. What are you, what are you doing wrong? Your entire team from the kicker to the placeholder to the assistant – to the graduate assistant, every single person on that team can get NIL opportunities in the state of Alabama without thinking twice. Pizza, soda, the car wash. I, there is not a player on that team that can't get an NIL opportunity because he plays for the Crimson Tide. So bad on them for not being able to make it happen because that's yeah. just, that seems, it seems impossible. Impossible. I don't know. I don't know. Do you like it better that he's complaining about AM now? before he's really lost to a and like that he complains about anything. Or is it worse if he were to complain about a and after he's lost to a and or after the Aggies won a national? I don't, I don't know. Thanks for watching Honorado and company, everybody. Have a great week.